So we return, we're back to Exodus, and we are getting into the nitty-gritty laws of the Old Testament. Remember, we heard the great overarching Ten Commandments. We took each one of those, kind of considering what does this mean, what does this mean? But now we turn to the so what, the, the daily details that fall out of those overarching principles. What does it look like playing out in the everyday life of, uh, you know, Mr. Joe Israelite, but to those underlying principles that translate to our own life, what that means for us as everyday Christians, trying to live out the same principles, but in our different context, the same principles in particular as we look at here of justice. And that's the theme uh, as we've seen really last week, but we're seeing it too this week as well. And as we turn to the theme of justice, I'm drawn to mind to this book that I read a couple summers ago. It was helpful, but he made this dizzying admission in the beginning of it. Uh, It was written by Thaddeus Williams. The book is titled, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth. And he said this, I am convinced that social justice is one of the most epic and age-defining controversies facing the 21st century church. He goes on and says, in the 20th century, you would encounter the term social justice while maybe auditing a sociology course or perhaps joining the chapter of a local activist group. Now it's in our coffee shops, our ads for soda, shoes, and shaving cream, our fast food establishment, our Super Bowls, our internet browsers, our blockbuster movies, our kindergarten curricula, our Twitter feeds, formerly known as Twitter, of course, our national media, media, and our pulpits. It's everywhere speaking about social justice. And while it is everywhere, picking up on our own thoughts here, a few seem to agree or understand what it exactly means. Uh, some conservatives even deny that social justice is a category altogether, while others, I think we can at least understand that it's justice practiced socially, that is, in a society. But as you move leftward politically from there, many varying priorities and emphases color one's view of social justice, whether it's to what's called anti-racism or to equal outcomes or equal distribution of wealth, or as I was reading about this weekend, if it's not equality, it's really about equity, which, quote, means take into account the effects of discrimination and the aims for an equal outcome. I don't know the difference really, but we can talk about that some more. Now, as Christians, we might wish to ignore these issues altogether, but it's in your Bible, and even quite literally in my English Standard Version, it's the subheading here as part of our section, Laws About Social Justice. So what is a just society? What does real, true justice look like in God's eyes? What should define God's people is what we think about justice And what's right for our neighbor and, of course, for our responsibility to others. We need to understand this because we understand there's part of our responsibility here, too, in what God has called us to. But we have to be willing to correct our own notions and certainly the notions of our culture or our society around us of what we assume justice is to be. We don't get to define justice. We don't get to define, in a biblical sense, equity and what equality look like. We need to find them by God's standard, that is, true justice. And that's where we're here this morning. So we're picking up really on the, the big idea if we picked up from chapter 22 all the way to our t- the end of our text this morning, 23 verse 9. This is about a just God demands His people to do justly. And so we saw last week that had a lot to do about restitution, paying back for the wrongs that we had done. But here we're turning a lot, the text turns mainly on how we deal in the courts and so forth. And so we'll look into some detail about that. 
But God commands us, he's a just God, he commands us, his people, to live and do justice, to live justly, and so to, namely, give people the good what justice demands, to give them the good that they are due. And we saw that last time as we began, and we saw, what does this just payback look like overall? It means giving back what is due. And we looked at the first 17 verses of Exodus 22. We saw that living justly meant giving back people what they was owed them, namely when they had been wronged, right? Uh, to give them just payback, adequate restitution. If we have wronged somebody, we talked about this, whether you meant to do it or not. I had some interesting conversations in the foyer after the sermon last week about that. But we got to make it right. In short, take responsibility. That's what we're called to do. We're not trying to get out of this. That's what justice demands. Next, we also saw justice isn't just a horizontal issue, but it's a vertical one. This also has to do how we deal with God, and we'll revisit that even past what we saw last time. But in verses 18 to 20 of Exodus 22, you turn to that question, what then does God owe from us, so to speak? What do we owe God, that is? And we owe Him, we saw our worship, we owe Him our thanks, we owe Him our praise, and that's really what these three laws, which kind of seem in verses 18 to 20, I think at first kind of random, but that's really all uh, revolve around. They do about our worship. What are we trusting in? So in the first place, uh, it's about from turning you know, to magic or sorcerers, that shows a failure to trust and so worship God to trust His will and revelation. Or the gross morality listed next, that shows a failure to trust and so worship God through his own created order and design and boundaries in creation. And similarly, he just mentions at the end, when you're turning to other gods in worship, that's showing a failure to trust in God to provide, to lead, and to guide us, such that we look to other deliverers, other gods, other securities, other things that we think will rescue us. And namely, in our own age, of course, I think this is what money looks like in many of our minds and hearts you know, money, will it buy me the retirement that I need or the comfort that I need? I, I need more money. I need this so I can get the medical care that I need and such that it starts to rule over our hearts so we will not trust God and we will not pay back our neighbor, especially when it costs us. That's through verse 20. So we're continuing that theme of just payback. Where does it turn next? And it turns here. We need to give compassion to whom compassion is due. It's an interesting phrase, but it's really what comes out of these verses, verses 21 to 27. God's law now turns to from those who had been wronged, right? They needed restitution, they'd been stolen from. It turns from those who have been wronged, now it turns to those who might be wronged, namely the disadvantaged, the vulnerable. Uh, the previous laws looked at restitution, and now these laws come and bring protection. Protection to those who need it most, that is, those who in a society would have been easiest to have taken advantage of. See, God looks for them, and He wants justice for them too. And so we must, as His people, give compassion, that's what this is, compassion to whom compassion is due. And it starts with, as we look at verse 21, with the sojourner. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. Now, what is a sojourner? A sojourner is in the Old Testament, it's distinguished from someone who is, you know, a stranger or a vagabond or a traveler. You know, in a way, uh, my family, we are sojourners to Richmond. Yeah, we've lived here for ooh, over about 17 years. I guess I can look at the age of my children and think about that. Um, 
you know, we lived here 17 years, but I'm not from here originally. And in effect, in a way, we're kind of like sojourners, especially if you ask the true Southerners, right? We haven't been here very long at all. And so this is what a sojourner is, though, biblically speaking. It's not somebody just passing through. It's not somebody visiting. It's somebody who lives here. And in the situation in Israel, they live there, but they've even converted to Judaism as much as possible. That is, they have been circumcised. Uh, They are permitted to make sacrifices to Yahweh. This is who the sojourner is. They're even permitted to celebrate the Passover meal, the real defining feature of who makes God's people God's people. But as sojourners... They have no proper inheritance in the land. They're not part of a tribe, as it's going to come. They're not part of the inheritance structure. They don't have a tribe of, who has elders that watch out for them and govern for them. They're really on their own in a way that distinguishes them in many ways from a natural-born Israelite. The point is this. The sojourner, he's always going to be around you in Israel. Uh, they live with you, but they have few of the same protections those natural protections in society that the natural-born Israelites do. Which, what does this mean? They are susceptible to being unjustly treated. Uh, they're susceptible to being run over uh, by the, those seeking to take opportunities. And so God's first word to them, that is to Israel, is don't even think about abusing them. Don't you dare touch them. He commands them not to wrong or oppress the sojourner. And why not? Why is this such an urgent command? Well, it basically runs like this. Of all people, God's people cannot be those that would pick on the sojourner or the foreigner that's living with you. Why? Because it's utter hypocrisy if you pick on them. Look at verse 21 again, filling it out. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. Why? Because you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You've worn these shoes before yourself. You know what it's like to be a stranger in a strange land. You you know what it's like to have no defense, no clout, no standing, no defenders in the court. And how did you like it when people were taking advantage of you and you had no recourse? You had no one to appeal to. And it's interesting, instead of, which is, I think, our natural tendency as sinners, anyway, I think think like this, instead of trying to justify our mistreatment of others, say foreigners or whoever, because we were mistreated, that's not how this works, is it? You know what it's like to be mistreated. You know how unjust that is. How dare you think about doing that to someone else? I delivered you, God's saying. I saved you out of that oppression. You cried out to me about how horrible it was. You received compassion. So show it. Protect. Don't take advantage. As the text continues, it goes on and speaks of widows and orphans along the same lines. Now, note this. Why are sojourners, widows, and orphans all grouped together? Well, because they together are are persons in society that have no, quote, legal standing. They have no one to represent them, uh, so to speak, to defend them, and so then take responsibility for them and provide for them like the other Jewish males would have otherwise had. So widows, for example, think through the story like of Ruth, who was a foreigner and a widow, right? Could not represent themselves or claim their own land, but would essentially be forced to work for little more than daily food. And the same goes for orphans. You know, if another family member didn't take them up, they could be destitute and certainly very desperate, very vulnerable. 
both widows and helpless children, they are the, the weakest, the most needy, such that whatever little bit they had, if you were to take advantage of them, there's no one to go tell on you. And certainly they have no power to do anything to stop you. They are not served. They are not helped. They are not treated well. And they can do nothing about it. Now, that's not the call for God's people, what we are to do in response. But then it becomes really clear as you're dealing with widows and orphans, they have nothing to offer you, really. So they're not served or they're not helped because of what they can give you, they may never and probably never will be able to return to you what you pay out to them. So you see about helping the sojourner, helping the widow, helping the orphan, this isn't about, wow, this is a shrewd, good business dealing. This is about compassion. It's about mercy. Just as God showed mercy to you in your greatest need. See, these attitudes of empathy, compassion, service then, these have to define who we are as the people of God. Because that's how God treated us. And furthermore, he goes on with this astonishing word. If you are merciless to the needy, well, don't expect any mercy from him. I mean, this is what comes next in this, and it's just shocking in its vengeance. Look at this, verses 23 and 24. But if you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. Oh, they will be heard. And my wrath will burn. And I will kill you with the sword. Your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Now, two things there. First, if you will not defend the helpless, they're going to cry out to God. God will step in and defend them even if he has to defend them against you. Now, second, but do you see the justice that's in God's verdict here? What he declares against them? My wrath will burn, verse 24. I will kill you with the sword. Whoa, that sounds really extreme. But look what happens in the result. Your wives will become widows so they can see what it feels like. Your children can become fatherless so they can know what it feels like to be in need of mercy and have it pushed away from them. This is justice. Isn't this really that kind of eye for eye, tooth for tooth? And it's a justice, too, that's not foreign to even the New Testament. Remember this from James chapter 2, verse 13? For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. If God's mercy to you, and this side of redemption, he's come for you from heaven, he took your sins, he died for you, he saved you, if he did that, and that doesn't change you to show mercy, don't expect mercy from him. This kind of mercy gets extended to the poor in Israel as well, namely how you should approach them in their poverty. Again, in the main you got to be compassionate. You owe it to them because of the way God's treated you. So when it comes to the poor and needy, you cannot close your heart. You know, like in the New Testament, it talks about you can't just say, be warm and be filled and shut the door, especially to your brothers and sisters. 
And nor here do we see, as the commands unfold, this isn't about playing out in your mind when the needy are before you. You know, you start to calculate, well, I don't think they'll ever be able to pay me back. That's not where you're called to go. Oh, I'll never see my money again if I lend them the $10,000. That misses the point. Again, this is not about a good business deal. This isn't about a good return. It's about compassion. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean, to, to clarify a few things here, this doesn't necessarily mean you simply give a handout. But you must not be opportunistic, is, is the sense of these laws here, say, in lending money, but at interest, trying to make money off of their misfortune. Look at verse 25. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to them, and you shall not exact interest from him. And the idea is, I started to unravel this a little bit this past week, it's any interest. So if we can put this way into the church, like when you're lending to your, there's no, it's not a business deal, we're talking about a personal loan or something, like there's no interest. It's not about that. It's about you're helping someone who is in need. It's about compassion. It's about people. Such that here's your approach when you make this kind of deal as it goes next to talk about collateral. Look into verse 26. You you can't, if the guy's poor and he has nothing, you can't go then and just demand the shirt off his back. That's cruel. Verse 27. For that is his only covering, and it's his cloak for his body. What else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, again, this is the theme, isn't it? I will hear. Why? For I am compassionate. If you won't be, I will be. Here's the implication. God hears the cries of those who are unjustly treated, even at our hands. And He will act for the oppressed and the needy. And He wants His people, or in Israel's case, give me, right, His people who once cried out to Him, show me mercy, or in Israel's case, get me out of Egypt. And what did he do? He was compassionate. He heard. He delivered. And so he's saying, I've shown you mercy. You owe it to others to give it to them. Another way to say it, how can we delight, sing about, rejoice in mercy and compassion, and then in a time of need be cold, hard-hearted, unfeeling to others? Now, Does this mean we can only just give money away, that we can never make loans? That's not precisely the point. Especially for one in the faith when you're doing this, what it does mean, you could sure give a loan, but you're not doing it for the payback. You're not doing to make money off them. You lend from compassion because they actually need it. And again, this is a different standard of trying to do a business deal. Where Does this also mean... This is someone is in desperate need. Does this also mean, and so similar clarification, that any kind of banking or interest are just wrong to collect? Evidently not. I mean, Israel was allowed to charge interest to foreigners, non-Jews. So having interest is not always wrong in principle. But there seems to be this difference between what's kind of a business deal and then what's preying upon the misfortune of others those that can't pay you back, that you're trying to make them further indebted to you, especially in the financial payback. 
In summary, we're looking out for needs, not opportunities to get a buck. Does this then mean that we must always give to whoever asks of us, whether whatever panhandler or story comes our way? Now, we need to be careful. Jesus says you give when people ask, and that's true. That should be our heart. And whatever's done in faith, that honors Christ, and yet wisdom can be applied here. Okay. For example, I think the pastor's, this one pastor's clarifications just captures the right approach. He says, there are times when it is actually more merciful not to give anything at all, such as when the recipient will use the money to feed a self-destructive addiction. We are called whenever possible to do something more than simply pass up the interest, but to do good. But if you can tell, if you know where this is money is going, it might be wise to not give. That might be the more merciful thing to do, actually, and to find some other help. Now, even with these qualifications, I just I have to pause for a moment and say I'm challenged in my heart to not make these qualifications as excuses, right? To cover over from my lack of generosity, my lack of compassion. Oh, I know what they're going to do with that. I don't have any responsibility to them. That doesn't capture what the law is bringing out. Give compassion to whose compassion is due. And it's due from you because God's been so compassionate to you. When you least deserved it. When, what have you done with the grace he's given you? Have you always honored him with it? Second to that, the needy person, even if it's your enemy, we'll see as this law unfolds, or it's just someone that can't possibly pay you back, especially so, the needy person that God brings into your path, into your life, they are due owed compassion from you because you are God's rep on this planet. You stand in his place. He said, I'm compassionate. I hear. And he's calling you, open your ears, open your eyes, and see and look. God saved you and redeemed you. Why? To make you more like him, to grow in compassion. That's the kind of people we have to be. And so what do those in need get from you that are around you? Is it compassion? Is it the compassion to see the needy around you, or do you pretend that they're not there, like they're invisible? Because if you did see them, you're going to start feeling guilty. You, in your greatest need, were not invisible to God. Be compassionate. He saw you in your need. He helped you. Be compassionate as your Father in heaven is. This is what Jesus taught us. Give compassion to whom compassion is due. Tied to this, and not in contradiction, actually, but we give justice to whom justice is due. Coming out of the same laws, the same mouth, so to speak. So now we turn at verse 28, and this runs through chapter 23, verse 9. Many of these remaining directives given to God's people here focus primarily on the justice system. Uh, they had courts, uh, their elders making decisions of things, and he's going to give some guidance for how they should think about a number of things. But before they get there, the law brings us back to God. God just gets inserted right back into the middle of these laws. So as we think about how we should treat our neighbor, you just see God cannot be far from your mind. He, and whose character is, must inform your daily living and how you treat others. 
Yeah, you owe justice to your neighbor, but again, what do you owe to God? What do we justly owe back to him? Well, first off, it starts, we honor him with our speech. He is due our reverence in the way we speak about him. Just opening verse 28, you shall not revile God. This word revile is to make light of something, to make it seem insignificant. Think about it in the Hebrew mindset when we talk about God's glory. What is this? It's his weightiness. It's his significance. It's like a gravitational pull that impacts everything around him. But to revile him in this way is to treat him like he doesn't really matter, that he's insignificant, that he's a phantom. And the way you speak about him, does it sound like he doesn't really matter? When you call his name out, is it thoughtless? Does it not bring any significance and meaning to what you're talking about? We talked about this before. We talked about taking the Lord's name in vain. But now that same principle gets applied, the vertical principle gets applied immediately horizontally here to those that God has placed an authority over us. As God is the ultimate authority, we shouldn't revile him. Instantly, another command gets tied right on the piggybacks on that. Look at verse 28. You shall not revile God, and then it turns right in, nor curse a ruler of your people. Buckle up for this presidential election, right? You shall not curse a ruler of your people. And why not? Because we're convinced they're always right? Because we're convinced they make good decisions? Because we're convinced they have our best excuses to revile? No. That is, those are not excuses to revile, you see. No, it's the respect due to his position. Because guess who put him there? God did. And so this command holds to not curse our rulers, holds even when you didn't elect him, even when you didn't vote for him, even when you don't like what he's doing, even if he does immoral things. You don't get to curse the man. Why? Because our respect for God translates to even those that he puts over us. Has the way, for example, you have spoken about our current president honored the God who put him there. Guard your heart again this election season. Do not mock. What have we started with? Pray for him. Furthermore, our respect to God, this just thing we owe him, is sampled again in our worship. That's where the text turns next, to our tithes, our offerings of thanksgiving back to him. You see, he blesses you, and you return in blessing and thanks back to God. Verse 29, do not delay even to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. Again, God gave you this. That's what you're showing with your quick praise and thanks and offering back to him. Don't drag your feet in this. It's his. Show him that in your trust. For Israel, too, it mentions he owns the rights to the firstborns. This is part of their worship, to give back the firstborn sons and animals. Look at verses 29 as it continues. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother, and on the eighth day you shall give it to me. What's this giving back of sons? Of course, this is in reference to the Passover. 
God of the Passover wiped out all the firstborns in Egypt, save those that were taking shelter in a house that had blood on the doorpost. And when God spared those that were in those protected houses of Israel, He says, all those firstborns, I bought them. They belong to me. And so this is what this command's about. Don't drag your feet in giving back your firstborn sons and firstborn animals to be dedicated to me. Don't hold them back. They're mine. They're not yours to hold. In a way, this is your finances, all that God's entrusted to you of resources, time, health. It's not yours to just do what you want with it. It's been entrusted to you by this God. He's saying, as we say, you don't own it. You're a steward of it. Now, for Israel with their firstborn sons, you know, what is this about? Well, later on, the Levites, the whole tribe, just took the place of the firstborn sons. But even then, the sons of all the other tribes, they had to pay a redemption price to buy their firstborn son out of that, so to speak. A redemption ransom price was paid. That is because God still owed, was owed this. And we just turn to ourselves in the New Testament. I mean, have we not been redeemed? That's why God uses this language to call up these ideas. He bought you with the blood of Christ. He owns you. 1 Corinthians 6.20, for you were bought with a price, Paul tells the Corinthians. So what then? So glorify God with your body. He owns you. What objection are you going to give? He bought you. And he's good. So follow him. You owe him your everything. And that should impact every aspect of of your life. It did for Israel, even what they could eat or not eat. Look at verse 31. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. They were to be a holy people to God. They were to be different from the world. They couldn't just eat whatever. And that came down to the very things that structured their whole life about what they ate and didn't eat. And, of course, the law will expand on that. Now, for the New Testament, you know, those laws don't apply. Jesus purified all food. We can eat really whatever we want. We've been made clean by faith in Christ, not by abstaining from certain foods. Uh, But like Israel, we are a holy people to God, set apart for obedience to His Word that He's called us to. So you can eat all foods, but you abstain. You abstain from sin. You abstain from the evils of your past life. God saved you to sanctify you, to make you different, to live in honor to Him. Glorify God with your body, He says. So that's what God is owed, our everything. That's what's just. Now it turns, as we turn the page to chapter 23, If we are going to be different and do justly like our God has done, well, we need to know how He defined justice. How does He define justice? That is not how our culture does, but how does He define it? And all the more, it seems, doesn't it, as we follow God's Word and what He says about justice, this is going to distinguish us more and more from the culture of our own day, it seems. Uh, That is, you know, our whole American culture built on Western culture, it's founded upon, derived from biblical values of standards of justice. You know, it was, came out of a Christian Europe just in the broadest sense. But more and more, those standards of actual justice are being challenged, slandered as unjust. They're being seen as 
even called weapons of oppression, views of actual justice. When the thing is, these are the very principles God has given to protect, not to oppress. Our God is just. He bids us to do justly. But these laws have to clarify for us, maybe all the more in our day, what true justice really is. So in the first place, we find God's justice, it's based on truth. It's based on fact. It's based on reality. Verse 21, or excuse me, verse 1 of chapter 23. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. To spread a false report, to give an untrue testimony, you're lying. You're either shading the truth or changing it. You're changing the story to your own benefit or to whoever you want a preference. And in the case of joining hands with a wicked man to do this, you've become a malicious witness. That is a violent witness. You've assaulted the truth and you're propping up injustice on your neighbor. God's justice is by the truth. Second, God's justice is wholly impartial. In other words, if God must pick sides... He picks the truth side. Look at this. You can't just go with the flow. You can't side with the majority. Verse 2. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear false witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Justice is not a popularity contest. It's not the most followers or retweets you get on the artist formerly known as Twitter. It's not a popularity contest. It's what is true. You can't side with the majority. You might even have to stand alone against the majority. This is what God's people are called to do, to stick out like a sore thumb. Why? Because you cannot determine truth for yourself. It's not majority opinion. You don't get to vote on it. God tells you what's true. He tells you what's just. So you can't just side with the majority even though it might cost you. Tied to this. But neither can you be partial to the poor, to the disadvantaged. You can't be partial to them either. Verse 3. You shall not be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Again, I think this is where the whole social justice, diversity, inclusion efforts just get, can get so off base. Where it's not justice based on what you have done or what you owe or what you accomplished. You know, it's not getting what everybody else deserves to get based on what you've done. It's not everybody being treated equally under the law. It's about getting what's owed you, so to speak, but not by what you do, but by who you are, the color of your skin or whatever your background is or how much you associated with some victimized class. That's not justice. Actually, that's attempts to enshrine injustice, according to God's Word. The law... Now, this is the law, mind you. The law does not permit us to say, well, he's really poor, he's had a tough time in other spots, so we're just going to go easy on him. That's not justice. And in a society as a whole, and that's what we're talking about here, we're we're not talking about individual relationships. We're dealing with, these are laws that set up God's society for his people, Israel. When you start to do that, you're only going to encourage more injustice, more criminal activity. Again, is it just a reference point as some of our cities are discovering, run over by these DAs who won't persecute or prosecute? See, in this way, justice, God's justice favors no one. 
He's called as the God who shows no partiality. He treats people under his law the very same. And it's depicted even in our own Western society of lady justice, right? She holds the balance, but what about her eyes? They are blindfolded. She can't look. She can't judge by her eyes to preference or discriminate. She has to hear the merits of the case. And this is the kind of justice that God calls us to as his people. That's true equity. Third, God's justice does the right thing for everyone or anyone. Look at this, verses 4 and 5. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of the one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You know, contrary to what was Jesus had to battle in the first century, the law wasn't telling the Jews to love their neighbors and hate their enemies. The, the law doesn't even tell you that. They had so misconstrued in their mind the law. Really here, Exodus 23, you, you need to love your enemies. You need to do right by them. Be neighborly, you know, in our context. Return his runaway dog. Retrieve his wallet. Give him a ride someplace. Even he's your enemy. Do the person right. You owe it to them. Fourth, here in verses 6 to 8, God's justice must be given out rightly, justly. That is, nothing can move us from ruling according to the truth. You don't rule against the poor, perhaps because he can't do anything about it. Verse 6 or verse 7, look at this. Keep far from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent and the righteous. Note this because God says, for I will not acquit the wicked. And again, this calls to mind God's role is the ultimate judge. Even if you would pervert justice and you would condemn the righteous or acquit the guilty, know this, God won't do it. And by implication, God won't acquit you for twisting justice. Then verse 8 hits those offers that where folks are trying to seek or, or steer justice in their direction through bribes. It's an amazing word picture. What do bribes do? They blind the clear-sighted. You see really well, but you put those bribe lenses on and the truth just gets, it's like a funny mirror, all twisted around. And then in verse 9, returns to the matter of sojourners, where we began in verse 21 of chapter 22. Only here it's in the context of justice, again in the courts before the judge. Verse 9, you shall not oppress a sojourner, you shall know the heart of a sojourner, or you know the heart of a sojourner. Again, why? For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Again, with this matter of sojourner, it returns this theme, these two issues then. One, remember. Remember where you came from. Christian, remember how God treated you in your deepest need. You know what it's like to be a sojourner. You know what it's like to be lost. You know what it's like to have been taken advantage of. Don't, do, don't you dare do that to someone else. The good that God's given you must inform how you treat everybody else. But second, no matter who the person is, whatever their relative standing, whatever their network, whatever their matter of connections, their clout in society... Justice must be given to whomever justice is due. From the king to the traveler, from the naturally born citizen to the foreigner, whoever it is, they deserve justice. And that's our call to give.
Now, whoever you are, whatever your issue then, get this, God wants you to get justice. What you justly deserve. And back to verse 7, God tells you what he's going to do about this. I will not acquit the wicked. And that's all well and good for a society, you know, how we need to interact with one another. But once we turn this personal, that God will not acquit the wicked, I trust you might be sweating a little bit, or you should be, not only because it's a little warm. You know, we've been talking, what does justice look like on a horizontal plane? But now again, back to the vertical If he is our maker, he is our judge, he's a good judge, he's shown us here through his laws and instruction. I mean, what's the thing banging over and over again? I'm a just God, I'm real true about justice, I will not acquit the wicked, I will not clear the guilty. And yet, right, as Christians, in the gospel, in the very message of the good news, this is the very thing we're banking on this God to do, to acquit the guilty. The wicked person, us. And so this is an audacious claim. Hope upon hope for us in Christ. Paul puts it like this. This is Romans 4, 5. This is the faith that we have. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, acquits the ungodly, the wicked. If you can believe God would ever do that, then your faith is counted as righteousness. But then you got to ask, how can anyone believe that? You just saw how just this God is. How could he look at me, all that I've done, all the compassion I haven't shown to others, and he could look at me and go, righteous Rick. How in the world is that possible? I mean, these laws should be haunting us. But the answer, of course, how could he ever say to the guilty, you are righteous? The one answer is this, the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus' death in your place. Just before this in Romans 3, Paul puts it like this. He calls Jesus' death for us our propitiation. God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood. That is a satisfaction of the just wrath of God you deserve if you trust him. All those sins you've done, those injustices you've done, they put you to the cross, but he took it in your place. That this just God had satisfied all justice on him. Why? So what's the result? He can be the justifier and still be a good judge of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so now at the cross with justice satisfied, there's no guilt left to be dealt with if you trust him you've repented and looked to Christ. He looks at every ungodly, repentant sinner, though, and he says, righteous because of my son. I know all your sin. I know all your guilt, but my son paid it all. True justice was satisfied in the cross so that you would get compassion. And so now our call is Show that to others. Let's pray for that. As I pray here, I'm going to ask the men who have been designated already to come forward to distribute the elements. So men, you can come on and come forward as I pray. Father,
We thank you that you are a good judge. We thank you that you are just. But we praise you because that justice is married with mercy. And we've seen that so supremely at the cross. And uh, as your people, we confess that we are sinners. Forgive us for our mercilessness. Forgive us for our lack of compassion, our greed, our selfishness that's held on to our, our monies, our time, our abilities. Make us wise in the expense of all of those things to uh, show your glory. But forgive us where we have been hesitant. May we be quick to worship because you've given us so much in your Son. And that really we have a rest that's coming and it's coming in the future that you have bought for us. But sustain us with the rest of our soul now because of the cross of Christ. Remind your people what you've done for us. And that's how you see us. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.